Hello, and welcome to our official first episode of the reboot of Sex and Life with Eli Jakeman. Uh, due to being in a different province, our wonderful producer Joe Ioni cannot join us and add his two cents every so often. With us today is Ross Hunter. Ross is, is someone I met through work, and he's a performer and uh, is uh, gay, correct? Correct. And he grew up in Nova Scotia, which I find very interesting, having grown up when I did in Toronto and knowing that there was still a lot of ground to gain in acceptance for being a homosexual, lesbian, or trans, whatever. I really want to hear his take on growing up gay in Nova Scotia and uh, uh, being a performer in Nova Scotia. Uh, so uh, you were born and raised here, weren't you? Uh, I was born and raised in Spring Hill, um, which uh, now being Cape Breton would be kind of the new Waterford kind of equivalent size town, a couple of thousand people. But with more teeth. Town. Uh, no, not necessarily. No, um, uh, you know, mine town, um, mines closed, lots of disasters, uh, nothing for youth to do. Um, yeah, small town Nova Scotia. It's kind of like the the Ramones song. I don't know. The All the kids want to sniff some glue. All the kids want something to do. Exactly. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. Now. When did you know you were gay? Um, I knew I was different starting school. So six years old, I knew I was different. And uh, I was blessed as a young child with a very high-pitched, girly voice, um, which, you know, put a bullseye on my back from grade primary. And yeah, so I was uh, picked on, yeah, I was picked on regularly. So I knew I was different. I didn't know what it was, but then I got labeled. Um, so at least it gave me something to investigate. And we're talking, you know, um, late 70s, early 80s. I'm 52 now. So it was um, a very different time than now. Now... Was the bullying just from your peers, or or was it from other people as well? Like, would they make snide remarks? No, it was it was it was playground stuff. It was you know schoolyard stuff for sure. Um, again, they didn't know what it was either. You know, they didn't know what gay was. They just knew that it was uh, something that was different and something to be feared and and something to a reason to to bully someone even though none of us knew what it was. And when did you figure out exactly what it was? You know, we're, we're, we're living in a world without the internet. We're living in a world with, um, you know, my mother, who was a single mom, raising six children on her own. Um, it was the land of Encyclopedia Britannica. So as early as I could look up the word gay, you know, there was an investigation which probably started by the time I was 10, and then I'd say by the age 11, 12, 13, preteen, puberty, you became very aware that there was something. And, and then, of course, you're, you're developing sexually. So I knew, I knew, you know, 
Um, when I look at Billy, I feel this way. Mm -hmm. When I look at Sally, I don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. There's a reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember I used to go spend summers with my sister and um, uh, in Windsor. And she would uh, put us in this uh, recreation group, this play group. Um, and I'd be, you know, nine, eight, nine, ten. And I remember going to the public, we used to go to the public pool. And I remember being in the locker room and um, seeing a naked grown man for the first time and being completely intrigued and fascinated. Even though I didn't have urges, I knew um, I liked what I saw. Which basically. is, which <laughs> yes. to me is interesting because that was, that was long before the standard practice of manscaping. Yes. Yes, it was. It's like a I little. Still, I still have an affinity for 70s, 80s porn stars. Jeez. <laughs> Jeez. All, you always go back to what you know. All that afro around there. It's just, it's scary. I get scared when I do that. Yeah, yeah. So when did you come out to your, your mother and, and your siblings? Um, well, it was, it was kind of a thing where everybody just kind of knew. I had my first experience when I was 15 with someone who was uh, older. And I remember I came home uh, with a very large hickey on my neck. And my mother saying to me, if you can't bring her home, don't come home with those on your neck. And I'm thinking, mom, you don't want me to bring <laughs> her or him home. Um, my siblings kind of knew. I, I guess my siblings kind of knew. And I think I, I started telling them when I was about 15. And were they protective of you? Yes. Yes. We never really talked about it. I, I mean, I did, you know, I did come out to them. Um, but we, it was never really a topic of conversation. It just was, was kind of stated, it was known, and it was. And, and I, I, I kind of know what that's like because, even, like I said, even growing up in Toronto as a bisexual... You know, it's not something you discuss openly. No. And it's, it's you know, you go to family events. Hey, how you doing? Well, I just hooked up with this great guy. Mm -hmm. No, you don't you don't talk about that at all. It's, I, even in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, I never, never talked to my, I never talked to my siblings about relationships I had when I was a teenager. Um, and there weren't that many. So, but I didn't tell my mother until I was 21. Even though I knew she knew, my mother was very supportive of me through the bullying years, which continued right through high school. Uh, got worse uh, as I got older, it got worse. She was very supportive of me as a person, regardless of what that was. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter what it was. Um, so there was never any need to really tell her. And then, uh, yeah, when I was 21, I... I traveled back home. Uh, I took my sister-in-law with me and uh, for the purpose of telling my mother and um, I couldn't say the words. And my mother looked at me and she said, I think I know what you want to tell me. And I love you. And it doesn't matter. I just want you to be safe and happy. Now you'd mentioned your, your first experience was with an older gentleman. Uh -huh. Uh, without getting into, you know, how much older or whatever like that. He was 21. So not that much older. 
six no, years. He was twenty one. He was the manager of the Stedman store. And I met him while I was perusing albums, because I used to. I, I, I'm a music addict, so uh, albums were my 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 saving grace when I was a teenager. I think I spent most of my fifteen, sixteen year old self in my bedroom with my stereo and my albums, um, because I hated school and I hated people, and and so that's kind of where I was. Music was a safe place. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. My mother uh, would clean houses uh, to make money. And uh, so I would come home from school, and I would be in my room with my albums, and I would be singing full voice. And she would hear me a block away as she came home from work singing in my room. <laughs> and, and that's what led you to become a, a singer. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I want to get back to that in a bit. Mm-hmm. But you're married, right? Yeah. How long you've been with him? Uh, we it'll be eleven years in January. We met, and it was seven years in August uh, since we've been married. Wow, seven years ago. Uh-huh. So that'd be like two thousand twelve ish. What was the reaction to a gay wedding? Uh, it was quite interesting, actually, because uh, at the time I had developed a restaurant for the Days Inn in Sydney, and <clears throat> so I was working there. So we actually had our wedding there, and we actually, in the back of the Days Inn, there's this big courtyard that overlooks the harbor. So we decided to get married outside uh, there, and uh, not realizing when you do these things... Um, not realizing that, that there were probably, you know, uh, 75 hotel rooms that faced into that courtyard and also a glass staircase because there were no elevators in that hotel, a glass staircase that everybody used that also looked into the courtyard. Timing being what it was, uh, there was a little league championship going on at the same time and most of them were staying at the hotel. So the backyard, the, the, the courtyard is decorated. There's, you know, it's beautiful. Uh, it's obviously set up for a wedding. And um, all of those hotel room windows filled with people. And the staircase filled with people. And people at Cabot House were on balconies with binoculars. And so the festivities begin and... Uh, my, my, my husband, uh, Adrian, uh, comes out first to walk down the aisle and everybody's waiting for the bride. Everybody's waiting for the gown, <laughs> right? Everybody's waiting for this and out walk I in my white tuxedo jacket. And there was a murmur that happened through the hotel. Um, there were, these were little leagues, so these were, you know, um, eight, nine, ten-year-old boys and their parents, and it was an immediate reaction of, this is two guys getting married, mom and dad, like, that's two men. And the parents had to then have that conversation. And it ended up being a really wonderful experience. We, we were walking the halls of the hotel and, and parents were stopping us and guests were stopping us and 
and uh, the reaction was resonant um, and positive. That's awesome. Yeah, that's it was, it was very cool because it's it's I think it's completely a conver- unintentional. Like we didn't admit, we didn't we were just having our wedding. We didn't admit, we didn't mean to affect anybody's life or beliefs or challenges, but. It just happened organically, and it was really, really, it was very cool. But isn't that just the best way to do it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I think it's a, a, a conversation all people should be having. Um, you know, my stance on, on homosexuality and, and uh, all my gay friends and all that. I mean, if it wasn't for them, mm-hmm. who knows where I'd be, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm very supportive yeah. of, of my gay family. Yeah. It was the best day of our lives. That's awesome. We we were were surrounded by 200 of our family and friends who had traveled far from Ontario. You know, it was Adrian's children um, stood with us. Um, His sister walked him down the aisle. My mother was there. Uh, My entire family was there. That's amazing because, again, I think it's important to talk about these things you know, as human beings, as, as caring humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember you were saying uh, before something about limiting yourself due to your own fears. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I had been offered sales positions because I worked in food and beverage hotels my entire life. And being offered sales positions and thinking, I can't, as a gay man... Because I was very out. There was never, there was never any, well, there, there were at times an in Ross, but Ross was always out. Or I always assumed that people knew. I didn't feel I had the need to ever tell anybody. I just assumed they knew. And I thought, um, I can't sell things to the old boys club, you know, to, to Cape Bretoners, to that demographic. And uh, so purposely turned down positions based on my own judgments and my own my own feelings. And then eventually just, I don't know, I opened myself up to it and, and never had an issue. I can count on one hand the amount of times that I have been um, bullied or, or subject to homophobia in, in Cape Breton. It, it's, we underestimate people, I think. Especially and, in small communities. And we let our own fears kind of control our decision makings or, or, or at least influence it. Yeah. And we don't, we don't give people the benefit of the doubt. We, we would, you know, the fear sets in, right? But if you just, if you engage people, um, when I moved here, I moved here in 1993, I think, 1992, 93. And I started uh, at the Delta when it was the Delta. And um, I worked with a, with a lot of people who had never met a gay person, had never had a conversation with a gay person. You know, we have to be careful that we don't accept ignorance as homophobia. We have to accept ignorance as an opportunity to educate. Mm-hmm. So I had... You know, grown men who had never had a conversation with a gay man asked me questions, and I always answered the questions. I always found for myself uh, when talking with someone who was would be considered homophobic, but just because of ignorance, mm-hmm. I've often said, you know, if, if you're comfortable in your own sexuality, 
what does it matter what anybody else is doing? Absolutely. So it's kind of like JFK said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Yeah, absolutely. Let me hit you with another quote. You've come a long way, baby. <laughs> have we come a long way? Um, it's interesting. You know, in ways, yes. I mean, when I was, when I was growing up, there was one movie called Making Love with Kate Jackson that dealt with uh, gay. There was no LGBTQ to anything. <laughs> there was nothing. Not a bunch of letters. There was nothing. There was gay. There was normal and not normal. And now, at least, we have a, we have a presence. We have a movement. But we also have a responsibility because just because my life is okay, just because I'm accepted, just because I don't um, suffer homophobia, we have to be aware of places like Chechnya where they're locking people up and torturing them. We have to be aware of ISIS and terrorists that are throwing gay people off roofs. It's now, everything is global now. So we can't just sit in our comfy little country that has great acceptance. Now we have to recognize what's happening globally and change those things. Do you think it's a detriment to encourage people to practice religions that don't have acceptance? Well, religion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Once in a while, we ask hard questions. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I actually um, had a very religious journey in at the same time of figuring out who I was as a person and what homosexuality meant in my life. So I was uh, Catholic. Uh, raised Catholic, not really raised Catholic. I, I my mother did not force ca uh, me to be Catholic. I wanted um, my first confession. I wanted confirmation. I wanted uh, some kind of acceptance, and I didn't get it from the Catholic Church. I was Baptist. Um, and then for about four years, I was Pentecostal. And all of them told me I was wrong, that, that my feelings were wrong. So I had to stop that journey because I couldn't continue a journey that was going to continually tell me I was wrong. So all I can speak of is my personal religious experience. Um, religion of any sort has always told me I was wrong. So I don't accept that. I had a wonderful lover when I was uh, in Halifax um, who one night after a drunken Luba concert at the Misty Moon where I got very ill and he took very good care of me went out the next morning and brought me back uh, copies of Shirley MacLaine's um, books on metaphysics and life after death and um, 
and they changed my life because it didn't talk about um, right and wrong of individuals and their beliefs. It talked about spirituality, which is very different from religion. Oh, most definitely. So I think we live in a very dangerous climate right now when it comes to religion, when it comes to politics, and when it comes to equal rights and human rights. Because there is a... Um, a war brewing and I blame a lot of it on social media uh, but I also give social media a lot of credit I don't know where it's going to go it it baffles me a bit uh, it's very complex um, but I feel I feel like the shootings the mass shootings, I feel like the the guy at McDonald's who tells people to go back to the countries they're from, um, you know, that we're seeing the racism, we're seeing the discrimination, we're, it, it's there in our face every day. So I don't know, I, I, I have faith in the human race. Uh, I have faith in Canada and, and our country um, that we will be strong and and persevere, but I I, I think it's going to get worse. I think it's going to I think it's going to hit a a moment of rebellion, and um, I'm not sure what that looks like. I don't know if it looks like. In, in in all honesty, though, the whole idea of get back on the boat and go home, I mean, that that stretches as far back as the Vikings, mm-hmm. when the Aboriginals was like, no, no, don't don't land here. Mm-hmm. Go back home. Mm-hmm. It, it worked out for a little while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, again, you know, you, you grew up uh, uh, about a decade before I did, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What was it like being on Cape Breton Island or, or Nova Scotia, uh, rather, at the beginning of the AIDS crisis? I mean, I mean, as far back as when it was still considered grids. Yeah, well, I was really young uh, during the AIDS crisis. I would have been a teenager. Um, you know, it was a mess. It was a mess. I mean, Reagan basically put his head down and let people die en masse. I don't know if it would be any different if it happened today. Hmm. I mean, one of one of my closest friends in Toronto, he's he's a few years older than me, mm-hmm. and he said during the eighties he buried a friend a week at least. Mm-hmm. Was it that bad here? No, no, it was not. It, 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 it we were. We were. I was living in Halifax probably during some of that time, and we didn't feel it. Nobody was talking. We didn't talk about it. Nobody was talking about it. Um, we saw the AIDS, you know, the AIDS quilt um, documentary. We, you know, we were aware of what was happening globally, but we didn't feel touched by it. We weren't fearful of it. Probably not fearful enough. People probably lost their lives because you know. Undiagnosed and whatnot. And, and I probably got very lucky. 
you know, I didn't, uh, I wasn't a complete, uh, you weren't always safe. I wasn't always safe, but I, I mean, I, I wasn't a complete, you know, I, was, I wasn't a slut per se. Um, you, you know, you grew but, into I was, that? but it was always so my, I grew into it. Yeah. <laughs> it was, but, but it was my time of sexual awakening when you, when you're, you know, in your late teens, early twenties and you have that sexual awakening, especially when you're you know, um, gay or bisexual or whatever, and you're figuring, navigating that all out. Um, I had, I mean, I had, uh, girlfriends in my early twenties. I had boyfriends in my early twenties, but it didn't, I didn't see people dying around me. Hmm. That's in a sense fortunate. Cause absolutely, I think I probably got very lucky. It's not a nice way to go. Uh, yeah, I, no, I've was, had some it exes. Was horrendous. It was horrendous. I've had yeah. a few exes pass away, and yeah, I never got it. The the gentleman um, that was my first uh, actually uh, uh, passed away from from HIV um, much later on. But no, because we weren't, you know, it was a different time. We weren't, it could have been much worse. If it was happening now, you know, we didn't have, like, we didn't travel internationally back then. Yeah. You know, in the 80s, we weren't, you know, going to New York for the weekend and San Francisco for the weekend. We could, you know, we were lucky to be in Halifax. There was, you know? there was really no kind of gay mecca in Halifax at the time, I guess. Um, well, the... There was there was definitely a gay community. Okay. It certainly wasn't a mecca, you know. But there was definitely a gay community. But but it wasn't the time of of now where you can hop on a plane and go to New York for a couple of hundred bucks, you know, and sleep with with whoever you want to sleep with and be be um, anonymous. Bathhouses weren't a thing here. No, bathhouses didn't exist here. I mean, again, growing up... They in, barely existed in Toronto and places like that then. You know, they were... It was New York and now Los Angeles. And it was very much... Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that... It was very much an American catastrophe. And, and what was... Again, growing up, what was your reaction to the Stonewall raids? I didn't learn about them. Again, we didn't have social media. We didn't have, you know... I didn't know about them. I guess it was like buried in the news. I mean, we never saw it. It wasn't on, you know, we had three channels, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you know, no, we, I mean, we had cable, but we didn't, it, it was, it was, it was a, it was a blurb in the media for Canada. It's, yeah. That's it's, right? it's, so they didn't, information is so much more now, but then I also feel like with the ease of information, Getting out there, there's also a lot of misinformation. Mm -hmm. I didn't learn about the Stonewall riots till probably ten years ago. Really? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I learned about them about 20, 25 years ago or so. Yeah, it's I really immersed myself in uh, uh, the gay culture because I knew I didn't fit anywhere else, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so that was kind of my thing to, and it, a lot of places I, I went in Toronto at that age were very progressive you know we had uh, I went to a, an alternative school and they had uh, gay studies mm -hmm. you know we would read books like uh, uh, Ruby Juice Fruit and <laughs> Ruby Fruit Juice whatever it is a story about a young lesbian it's a beautiful story really well written now let's let's change up gears a bit so you're a performing artist 
Well, I, I, I was a performing artist. I haven't performed in probably about two years. Okay. Why is that? Uh, a couple of different things. Um, I, I actually had a production, uh, a theater production company uh, called Interleft Productions with a, um, a peer of mine um, that we did for a couple of years. And, uh, and then I had spinal surgery. And with the spinal surgery came a lot of physical uh, problems. Um, and my legs don't work, so my dancing days are over. Not that they really begun, because I was never, <laughs> I was never a good dancer. My choreography was my nemesis I, always. I bet you're still a better dancer than I am. Oh, I, I, I look like Joe Cocker on crack. Well, you know, it's one thing to dance. It's another thing to do choreography. It, it, they're, they're completely two different worlds. Like, I think that I have... I, 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 if I'm in a club, I can bring it out. But when you have to follow choreography and you're doing it with 25 other people, it's a completely different ball of wax. Oh, yeah. Uh, you have to have some kind of control over your body. So the spinal surgery took that away. Um, and not just dancing, but just basic bodily function, like basic bodily movements changed for me. So that took out... And I also had a period of depression and, and a lot of things that came with, with the aftermath of that surgery. Uh, so we closed Interleft Productions. I closed my consulting company, um, was unemployed for, for, for a few months. Um, and, uh, so my focus changed to just getting my life back and the performing arts in Cape Breton, it's a massive commitment, a massive commitment. Um, and you, you're not only investing your time and your will and your talents and your energy, you're also investing money. Um, so it, 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 the timing just hasn't been right. I, I, I actually committed to a couple of things that I had to eventually turn down because it just wasn't conducive to my life at this point in time. Well, I would love to go back to it, and I, and I hope I will go back to it, that I will find other things to do. Um, but for now, I just am concentrating on my life. That's sometimes most important. Who inspired you to sing? Because I've heard you sing, and, and you're, you're fucking good, dude. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, it, my mother and my sister. Um, my oldest sister, Jerry. Uh, there's 18 years, or there was there was 18 years between myself and my sister, and they they sang around the house. They sang, you know, old country songs. Uh, the first song I ever sang, I think I was five, was uh, "I Never Promised You a Rose Garden," um, and then uh, so yeah, so they always sang around the house, uh, Carpenters and. Um, satin sheets and uh, you know all those great old country songs and so they inspired me to sing and then when I and then my, my brothers were, were vinyl addicts so um, I grew up with everything from Olivia Newton-John to um, Heart and Kiss and Joan Jett and... All the devil music. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Which I'm sure the Catholic Church told you, 
was not right as well. Well, the Pentecostal church, we weren't allowed to listen to uh, anything but Christian music. Uh, which I actually... I, I so Striper was okay. Well, and I discovered Amy Grant, which was great. Um, so, yeah, and uh, I, I, it was just something that I could do. And uh, so, you know, and, and it, it, it kind of enabled me to be fearless. Um, and it got me positive attention, which I wasn't used to, because most of the attention I got was bullying. So it gave me a power. Um, and that's something I've noticed about, about drag queens, because mm -hmm. believe it or not, I've dated my share mm -hmm. and probably your share and mm -hmm. probably a few of our listeners shares. And it's like out of drag. They're completely different people. Yes. Uh, one of my boyfriends, Glenn, when he was Glenn, as timid as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Mm -hmm. But when he got in drag and was Amanda, was fucking ferocious. Yeah. Ferocious. And, and if I was talking, let's say, to another queen, would make a point of standing next to me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And giving her that look. Yeah. <laughs> but as Glenn would hide behind me. Yeah. So I understand that, that the power of being on stage. Now, I've seen a video of you on stage. I think you were singing My Way. Yeah, that was cool. That was with the Cape Breton Orchestra. They actually invited me. Uh, they had got the rights to do this this show and and they had the original arrangement of Frank Sinatra's My Way and they asked me to sing it um, which was the top of my range um, and was terrifying um, but what a great group of people like they were so so great to me and, and, and to stand with that full orchestra was pretty cool and you killed it like thank you like in every aspect you know like the voice, the dress, the, the the charisma. I mean, you could feel and sense the charisma hmm. through the camera. And that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. How did you develop that? Um, well, I've, again, the gentleman that I had to enter left with, Robin Cathcart, is, is a brilliant musical director. Um, he coached me on that. Uh, because with Frank Sinatra, you have to have some swagger. You know, you have to have it. So he really helped me with that. Once I got the vocals down, then it was just about developing the swagger. Knowing that I could hit the notes was fine. I had to know that first, right? Yeah. And then you, then you can add the swagger. But a lot of people, I mean, you can't teach charisma. I mean, I remember back in my days in a band, um, and I think... The front man was a little jealous of it, but people would approach me and say that I had a presence on stage. Mm -hmm. And you can't teach presence. You can you can take all the vocal classes you want, mm -hmm. and you can practice all you want. But that kind of presence is is it's a natural ability that, of course, I mean, you need to smooth out and hone. But when did you realize that you had that power? When I was fifteen in my bedroom. And your mother heard you four blocks away. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, because I that's what all I did. I, I sang, I practiced, um, and my thankfully because of my sister, because of my brothers, because of the eighties. Um, you know, there was a plethora of artists that that I loved, ranging from again Olivia and John to. Um, Led Zeppelin to Kiss to and everything in between Barbara Streisand, and then I had I had some really great uh, partners when I was very young who introduced me to Bette Midler and um, so many amazing artists who I that I didn't know Katie Lang Barbara um, Streisand Barbara Streisand um, Rita McNeil um, so but. For, at 15, when you're in that developing stage and you're really figuring out who you are, you know, I got to spend, you know, four, five, six hours every day in my room with my mirror and my albums, um, honing that. That's amazing. And, and it's, it's, you hear that same story from performers of, of, of all kinds you know, about how they'd spend time in the room. Andy, uh, Andy Kaufman spent mm-hmm. time in his room and he'd create these skits and he'd practice in the mirror and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And uh, so you feel that that was like integral to your... Absolutely. Uh, uh, they were, they, these were my friends. These were my, these were my, my um, confidants. People who understood you. Yeah. What made you go with... A crooner like Sinatra, as opposed to sticking with something that was close to your roots, like country music. Uh, well, I didn't have a choice. I mean, that was that was the the, the song that they offered me, and and that was you know, uh, I, and I just got to embrace that. So that was not my choice. That was that was their that was definitely their choice. Uh, it's interesting because you know, I I, I wanted to be. Donna Summer or Barbara Streisand or Olivia Newton-John or these great um, belters. I wanted to be a belter. And uh, that little kid in primary with that high squeaky girly voice ended up being a baritone bass. Um, so I think it, 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 it allows me to be a belter, a, a belter baritone if you can imagine, which I don't think people hear a lot. I think, uh, you know, baritones tend to end up being background or, or supporting um, artists. So to be able to, I just love to belt, right? And Frank Sinatra was a, was a male belter, you know? Um, so it was a good genre for me. And I love that genre. I love the the old standards. I would sing standards until, you know, I passed away, I think. What was the first song you performed on stage? (laughs) The first... (laughs) This is really funny. The first song I ever performed on stage was in grade six in 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 a variety show. And uh, I sang uh, Melissa Manchester's Don't Cry Out Loud acapella, which probably never should have been done, but I did. Acapella is hard to pull off, even with the most experienced and seasoned singers. Yeah. What made you decide that song? 
because I was a little gay kid in grade six, and I love Middleton in Manchester. And don't cry out loud. Come on. You know, I've always been attracted to music that is emotional. And, and I love belters. I love songs. I love singers that just go for everything vocally. Just put it all out just there. get it all out there. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So, I mean, stereotypically, there's a lot of uh, uh, gay men in uh, performing arts. Mm-hmm. Did you find that community more accepting of you than others? Or, or was it pretty even keel all, all the way around? Um, you know, it never... The two never really affected each other right it, it was never there was never a community of gay performers that i've encountered um you know I, I i did a lot of time when i early when i moved here just singing in restaurants uh I, a friend of mine was a piano player so we would just do restaurant gigs um and then you know it wasn't until 10 plus years later that i met robin and we started actually doing actual production stuff um but there's no it being gay had not never reared its head once i brought it uh into my fold which is probably my favorite performance even though it's it's visually painful to watch um i think it's my best vocal um i did a a Pride Week variety show at the Hat, and uh, I deliberately wanted because we're you know the one thing I do not enjoy about the gay culture, uh, although secretly enjoy it, you know, is the buff, half naked, you know, gym boys. You know, it, it, it's you know you, you love it but you hate it because it's sexy and it's hot, but. It's also, it's not the norm. It's not, it can't not be the standard because if we try to live up to that standard, we will always fail. So I wanted to do a song, uh, a song that I love called Bring On The Men uh, by Linda Etter from uh, the show Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, I've loved the song for a long time and I wanted to perform that song, but I wanted to do it as a 40 something man. And I did it in boxer shorts and a bathrobe um, and uh, my husband and a friend of ours and a, and a girlfriend of ours were, were my backup dancers and, it, and we never rehearsed it we just we rehearsed it five minutes before the song before the show <laughs> and it's as awkward as fuck uh, and a little painful to watch um, and you know and I'm there in my middle aged saggy chubby 40ishness and that was intentional because I wanted to just be that. I didn't want to try to be beautiful and sexy and hot and all those things I, because we're not all that. But uh, dad bod's a thing now. Yeah. Does Adrian appreciate your dad bod? Well, yeah. <laughs> He's married to me now. He has no choice. No choice whatsoever. Uh, yes, I think so. I think so. Most days, and I appreciate his. He's he's a pretty fella. 
He is very pretty. Both, I, I, both me and, and my partner were checking out your pictures because she's like, so who's this Ross guy that's coming to our home? Mm-hmm. So we're checking out your pictures. She's like, ooh. Yeah, he's pretty. He's a pretty fella. He's pretty. Yeah, he, uh, yeah he's very pretty. Uh, I remember when we first met, um, he had just moved back. He, he moved back from Toronto. He lived in Toronto for, for 10 plus years to be close to his kids because his kids were up there with his ex-wife. And, um, but they were kind of living in a, you know, a neighborhood that was getting more and more violent as, as the days went by. So, so he moved them back to Cape Breton. Um, his daughter was 17. His, uh, son was 19. Um, so we would only see each other on the weekends because he had to be, of course, they, she was in school and, and Kyle was working. So, uh, he would arrive at my door on Friday evening and I, and I remember my, my, Every weekend, my breath would catch when I saw him because I thought, you know, he, this, this man is handsome. Like this man is, I, I, I found it very staggering how handsome he was. Well, you're a looker too, though. Don't, don't take anything away from yourself, sir. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I have my moments. You have your moments and, and you have like, check a, out, bring on the men on YouTube and then, <laughs> then decide. You, you, you have a hint of a dimple or dimples. Oh, I call them sags. <laughs> <laughs> I've always found dimples get me out of most trouble. Yeah, mine uh, usually get me into trouble. And eight, well, and the rest of the time they get me into trouble. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, did you miss performing? I, I, oh, very much, very much. But it, I found, I, you know, there were times I. Fe- I'm not. A, I'm not an actor. I, I, I'm not an actor. Um, I'm a singer. Um, but I've enjoyed the process. Um, I think one of my favorite favorite acting roles I did um, uh, the Ghost of Marley in um, um, A Christmas Carol at the Hat, and uh, that was really that was a really cool experience because I. I we had a wonderful sound guy. We had a great director. I wanted to, they had done it the year previous. I think I did it year two. I think they're now in year seven. I only did it one year. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted it to be very dark and very scary. And, uh, um, um, the director was, was supportive of that Wesley Colford. And um, so I literally came from the back of the theater in light and smoke, carrying 25 pounds of towing chain around my neck and body, dragging it down the aisles and being able to slam it against the whole wood floors of the, of the hat theater. And um, at least two, I think we did, I forget how many performances we did, but at least two of the performances uh, parents had to take their children out in tears because they were that frightened, <laughs> which I saw as a celebration. I was like, oh, yes, I, got it. I did it again. It kind of is a badge of honor. I mean, you yeah. look back at, at things like, uh, for example, The Exorcist, where people left mm-hmm. because, and I'm we're talking grown adults, left because it was just too scary. Yeah. That's... Uh, you know, if you're going for scary, people leave them crying. That's yeah, <laughs> that's a mark, all right. <laughs> yeah, it was a really that was a really cool moment, and I, and I was in full makeup, and and Diana, who does the costumes, gave me a great costume, and and uh, it was it was a wonderful experience. Now, do you get out and sing anymore, like karaoke at least? 
Um, I don't. I, I, you know, I sing at home every day. Um, I will go back. I will. I will definitely sing again uh, publicly. Um, I do miss it a lot, but it's also it can also be very stressful. Yeah, you know, I, I've done some. I, I, I like. I like performing in for bigger audiences where there's lights in my face because I don't like to be able to see the audience. And with Enter Left, we did a lot of small venues where, you know, we're what, three feet apart, where that's kind of where the audience is. And I find that very daunting. I find that very uh, challenging to overcome. I think that's with my nerves. That's a, um, a fault with the lighting people because having done stand up for 10 years on and off mm -hmm. and a lot of small rooms in Toronto, um, there were a lot of rooms that just had the lights set up properly. Mm -hmm. And even though audiences, again, you know, three feet away from you or closer sometimes, mm -hmm. with the lights, you just could not see them at all. Yeah. You know, performing at, at of course, bigger venues when you're doing pro am nights like Absolute, mm -hmm. Yuck Yucks, those places, they're great places. Um, but you really can't see the odds because spotlights on you all yeah. the time, right? Yeah. Um, I think it, if I'm going to do anything again, I think I'd like to do. Uh, uh, you know, something with just, you know, a piano and just sing. Have you ever written any of your own music? Never. I tried once. I was inspired by uh, George Michael's album, Older. And I tried and it was horrible. So no. <laughs> and I don't, and I don't play an instrument. So it's very, that's very challenging. Um, yeah. So I'm a singer. That's well, it. Listen, Ross, this is it's about the time we have, but if you do get out performing, be sure to let us know here at, at Sex and Life. I will. And we will plug it like crazy uh, because you, sir, have a, a wonderful voice and anybody uh, who is listening to this, if you, you check out his YouTube stuff, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Ross Hunter fabulous singer from cape breton mm -hmm. from nova scotia thank you so much for being with us thank and you. uh i hope fun. everybody listening uh will tune into the next episode cheers <laughs>